Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And as I was in the process of taking control of my health, I uh, was using a PEMF electrode, that's pulsed electromagnetic field electrode, and put like an indent on my forehead. So don't worry about that because we are delighted to have us uh, to be interviewing Denise Minger, who is most noted for her uh, takedown rebuttal of the China study about five years ago. And uh, perhaps we'll touch on that a bit today, but she is a, uh, a really gifted uh, communicator and is going to be sharing some really interesting uh, items with us today. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Denise. Hey, Joe. That should be a song. <laughs> uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So is there anything else you'd like to add to your bio at the beginning before we start? Um, probably for anyone who doesn't know my background already, like I have a pretty vested interest in the whole vegan versus omnivore mm -hmm. battle, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Um, no. I became a vegetarian myself when I was seven years old. I was eating steak one night at dinner, almost choked on it, developed some kind of phobia <laughs> surrounding things with meat textures, and I went vegetarian overnight mm -hmm. at that young age. Stayed vegetarian for 10 years. Um, during that time, I was also developing food allergies, including a wheat allergy and a dairy allergy. And so by the time I was a teenager, I was really health conscious. I was very aware of what was on food labels, had to get into that whole scene just to basically stay healthy. And then when I was about 15, I came across the raw vegan movement, which I'm sure you're mm -hmm. <laughs> probably familiar with. The branch of that I ended up in was the 80-10-10 diet, which was mm -hmm. promoted by a guy named Doug Graham, who I think mm -hmm. also lives in Florida. Mm -hmm. Y'all could be neighbors. And his whole idea was, look at what the monkeys eat. Look at what the primates eat. They're frugivores. Well, you know, it's arguable what they eat, but they eat a lot of fruit. They eat vegetables. They're not huge hunters. They're mostly vegetarian. Mm -hmm. I was reading about this online at the age of 15 without having any background in human biology or physiology or anthropology. And so I had no, no, uh, no uh, baseline like knowledge to judge the things I was hearing. So I fell into this trap of logic, thinking that humans are the only food, only animals that don't cook our food. We're the only animals that eat this species inappropriate diet. Mm -hmm. Might as well be a raw vegan. So I went mm -hmm. raw vegan overnight. I'm very, I'm very like 100% all or nothing with things. So when I do something, I commit to it. So for one year straight, nothing but fruits and vegetables and some nuts, all uncooked. I did great for the first month, as most people do when they mm -hmm. stop eating crappy foods. After that period, I started losing weight, losing muscle. My hair was falling out. My energy levels were just fluctuating like crazy. Um, I was in high school at the time taking the SAT. And I remember my brain fog got so bad at one point that when I was taking the SAT, I was reading a question. By the time I got to the end of the question, I couldn't remember what the first part of it said. It was like that level of lack of comprehension. And then the kicker for me, because I've always taken great care of my teeth, was at the end of this period of raw veganism, I ended up with 16 cavities in my mouth. Mm -hmm after a lifetime of what had previously been perfect dental health. So that was what kicked my butt. Uh, going to the dentist, expecting praise, expecting my ego to get stroked, like, oh, your teeth are so good. When you're sitting in the chair, hearing the dentist, like, make small noises of concern, <laughs> like, above you while you don't know what's going on, that's terrifying, especially when you're, you know, fairly young and your teeth have always been good. So it was actually the dental health issue that really turned my mind around with the whole mm -hmm. diet stuff. And at that point, 
I had to let go of the vegan philosophy and I had to start questioning things I'd previously heard. And that's when I came across things like the Weston A. Price information uh, depository, which was beautiful, you know, what humans have been eating that has supported health in the past. Learned about the paleo movement, different forms of health conscious omnivory. And that's where I ended up. So it was a, well, well, a process. Please, please tell me that your dentist didn't use mercury fillings. He did not. No, they All were right. sweet, I think. Yeah, so was, no, That's no. Good. I, I've seen you lecture on the China study before at Weston Price about five years ago. I and and I do remember your history, even though you have no formal science training. Your your father, I believe, is an academician. It's in a university. And, and your, your primary interest is English literature or something like that? <laughs> in college, I changed my major like nine times. I, was, okay. I did all the ologies. I did... I mean, it was indecision. Um, but yeah, my dad was a college vice president. He's retired now. Okay. But he worked in higher education for decades, almost his yeah. entire adult life. My mom also worked at um, in Portland, the National University of Natural Medicine. They changed the name. But she was working also in higher education. And so much education on both sides of my family. I totally appreciate the value of a formal education, but I don't think it's the only way to learn. Mm -hmm. And quite often it's not the most efficient way to learn. So okay. uh, that's where I landed. Yeah. So, and you're, you're very gifted, uh, thankfully due to the skills that your parents uh, provided you. And I'm sure the whole framing of your, your adolescence. And I, <clears throat> I guess what catalyzed your re debunking the China study was an injury that laid you up in a hospital bed, essentially not to do, <laughs> able to do anything for a few months and you had extra time on your hand because you never really went into to, to do that. But uh, I guess maybe you can relate that story and I have another comment before we can go into another topic. Sure, that's a great one, um, especially because I get a lot of questions of who funded this? How did you have all this time to do this study? Mm -hmm. Were you, you know, sponsored by the meat industry? I love that. If I was sponsored by them, I am still waiting for my paycheck. So yeah. <laughs> I will give you a forwarding address. Um, but yeah, when I was 23 um, or 22, I got hit by a car. I was riding my bike. This was in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, a woman in an SUV T-boned me while I was riding mm. my bike. Ooh. I was not wearing a helmet. Mm, I do now. That double <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I shattered my elbow. I don't know if you can see this, but I have a scar. Yeah, sure. My elbow was like halfway up here. It was the size of a grapefruit. Um, so I was in and out of the hospital for a bit, getting surgeries on my elbow, doing the physical therapy thing. And I couldn't do anything else, really, because I was obviously injured. I was healing. And I didn't know this at the time, but when you get hit and it's not your fault, they give you pain and suffering money which mm -hmm. I'm not recommending anyone intentionally gets hit for this reason. However, I ended up with enough funding so that I didn't have to work, you mm -hmm. know, a regular job for a while. Um, my initial plan was to move to Thailand because I mm -hmm. wanted fun. As we were remarking earlier, I'm in Seattle right now and the sun mm -hmm. has just emerged. And so I'm going to like, I keep looking out the window because I want to go outside and play. Um, but I wanted to move to Thailand for sun and to just like re revise my whole life. And mm -hmm. my passport kept getting rejected. I submitted my application two or three times. And every single time they told me I had insufficient forms of identification. It was really <laughs> weird. It was so weird. So I was like, okay, that plan, for whatever reason, the universe is telling me don't go to Thailand. So I stayed at the time. I was in Portland, I believe. I stayed in Portland, got a huge book 
of the raw China study data. And I am a person who loves numbers. Like it's just, I have fun with correlations. I have fun looking at patterns. It's just my brain gets happy. And so I spent about two to three months pouring over the data, like just, I needed a project. So I had nothing else to do. So I was pouring over the data and that's when I realized I needed to write a critique of the book. Like it just, it so much of the stuff that Campbell said was not supported by his own data. And uh, I just felt like if this, if there's anything I needed to do in life, it was going to be this. And I didn't expect anyone to read it. You know, I had a little blog going, mm-hmm. I always say, you know, if I had six readers, five of which who, who were my mother on different computers. Cause I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I think it actually, she, she does that. So it's, uh, it was like, you know, my mom basically is my, my sole cheerleader. Um, and I didn't realize at the time how much interest the critique would gather, how much interest there was in that book itself. I hadn't really, I guess, seen the rivalry up front between the vegan and the paleo worlds. And so when I released this critique, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be that influential. And I'm very excited at how it all played out. Yeah. So it's been five years now and you've developed quite a bit of uh, notoriety as a result of that. And especially in the the vegan community, um, (laughs) you you are, you have been really vilified. Uh, and uh, really characterized as someone who, by many, not all certainly, but but it seems, but even by Dr. Campbell, the author of the China study, who who's wrote personal rebuttals to your rebuttal, um, or vid, did video commentary, and I mean certainly a lot of others uh, really characterize you as someone who's promoting uh, processed food, McDonald's, <laughs> KFC. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you know they're, you're you're really attacking the, what what for I think is best described as the Bible of the, of the raw vegan uh, position is the China yeah. study. And really, really is the scientific justification for many of their positions. Yeah. So I'm wonder, wondering how you've hand it, handled the attacks. Oh, uh, I have cried. <laughs> I will say when it first started happening, I'm like, this was a great le- lesson in learning to not require other people to like you. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you're a public figure, people are going to hate you just because Mm -hmm. you are a projection screen for all of their (laughs) their stuff and you're convenient and they can hide behind pixels. Um, So the initial response that I was getting, like, as you mentioned, Campbell wrote a few responses. The first one he wrote basically, again, accused me of being a front for the meat industry. Um, It said, I mean, it was in some ways flattering. He said, I cannot believe that a, a young girl could do this all on her own, which I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff embedded in that, but we, you know, we can, that's a different, that's a psychology issue. Um, and, you know, so when I was reading that, it was, it was really hard to not take it personally initially. Cause it's like, you know, I'm, I'm just, I was at the time I was working as an after school teacher. Like I was I just hobbling together an income working, being very low under the radar and like to have that kind of attention that was negative is really profoundly injuring at the time um but after i'm sure <laughs> you know how it feels to get <laughs> to get people hating you. I've, I've been there down and, that road a few times i mean you know and it's part of it's part of the journey and after mm-hmm. a period of time you you learn that it's actually a good thing if you're getting people talking if you're getting people angry enough to care they're you're hitting buttons like you're hitting buttons that need to be hit and the mm-hmm. it, the discourse that unravels from that is always really important so for me like handling the the feedback i got um, again, there's like the initial period of like, oh, why do people hate me? And then that moves on to how can I use this mm-hmm. for my advantage? How can I use the the controversy and all of this to uh, to keep the dialogue going? And then there actually came a period where 
it was really helpful for me to hear feedback from people who disagreed with me because I noticed I had started a new a new form of dogma for myself. Um, you know, I'd moved from the vegan stuff in a very reactionary way, which I think is usually the progression for people who leave one dietary tribe. You get angry at it. You do the exact one ED opposite for a while. You think you found a new holy grail. After a period of time, you realize you just transferred that type of dogma to a different template, but it's the same, it's the same pattern. Um, so for me, like after a while, I started questioning the low carb thing and the ketogenic thing and thinking, well, you know, I've been attacking veganism more or less for a while. Mm -hmm. Should I also be questioning my new beliefs? And mm -hmm. so in that sense, people who disagree with you, your critics, they can be mm -hmm. really important. I mean, they're not mm -hmm. always gonna be right, but they, they provide feedback that can be growth oriented. So that has been helpful too. Okay, well, thank you for that. And I w was wondering if you can comment on how you're reconciling some of the differences, because I think there is some kernels of truth in the China study. And, and the biggest yeah. one, the biggest one, from my perspective is, and what I believe is one of the primary variables that's responsible for a significant health improvements that most Veg, many vegetarians, maybe not most, but and certainly vegans enjoy relative to, this, to those who eat the standard American diet is that they have a very significantly lower protein intake because plants are not protein dense. So I think there's some, some really uh, valuable insights there that can be integrated into a low carb paleo approach. And, and I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Um, definitely. For the protein issue, what I always find interesting is whenever we look at um, like the China study, for example, when you look at their food intake, it's much different in terms of the types of animal parts they consume than we mm -hmm. see in America. Like I'm, uh, the protein issue is complicated, but I will say that a high methionine intake, for example, mm -hmm. like sure. muscle meat, bad. That's, for those who don't know, methionine is, is an amino acid. Amino acid yeah. Right. That um, is and necessary because it converts ultimately to glutathione. So, um, what, what uh, strikes me and I think what the research is supporting is that we need to balance with that and glycine. And mm -hmm. you get that by eating the entire animal, by eating the skin, by eating the tendons, connective tissue, all the stuff that Americans typically discard. We like, you know, we like the, the, the muscle meat, like it's, there's some type of sure. like, association. Maybe it's because that other stuff seems like poverty food and there's still kind of psychological hangups about eating stuff that poor people eat. Or, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff built up in that. Um, but like in the China study, you see, you don't see them eating steaks and chicken breast for every meal. You see when they do, even the, the lower animal product consuming societies, a lot of them eat insects. A lot of them eat the weird parts of the animal. And I think that's imperative for staying healthy on an omnivorous diet because the way we eat meat in America is pathogenic. It's not healthy. It's There's so many things wrong with that, but it's not necessarily because animal products are bad for you. Mm -hmm. And then just with the data in the China study itself, um, what was amusing to me because it was completely left out of the, the China study book was that the healthiest populations were the seafood eaters, the ones that were living in coastal regions. They had the best health outcomes. The only, um, the only disease that they had more of, I think, was liver cancer. And that was because they were living in humid areas where aflatoxin was more prevalent. So they were ingesting basically carcinogens from this the mold and different foods. And uh, that was increasing liver cancer rates, but it wasn't because of the animal protein. It wasn't because of the fish. Um, so Campbell himself actually co-authored a study showing that it was the, opposed to the vegetarian inland groups, it was the coastal seafood eaters that were on the whole healthier within that 
that data. So I always found that kind of well, interesting. Sure. Well, and of course, there's the other issue of preformed long chain omega-3 fats, that exactly. primarily the EPA and DHA, and uh, those who are restricting themselves to a plant-based diet are only getting ALA, which is the precursor right. for those. And, you know, most of us are unable to convert it at significant therapeutic levels. So, so uh, that would speak well to support the position that we need some of those animal foods that are yeah. healthy toxin-free versions because unfortunately most of them are loaded with lots of mercury heavy metals and and environmental toxins yeah <clears throat> yeah so but i'm still wondering how you i mean so the, clearly the composition of the animal protein is, is a significant issue we don't want yeah. processed foods and we don't want them from confined animal feeding operations that are loaded with uh, typically glyphosate because that's the sprayed on the food that they're given and of course it recycles into the tissue so uh, but i'm wondering about the the actual amount of protein and if you've looked at that or if it formed any conclusions from your review um, from the China study review, not so much. I, this is one issue where I think there's, again, the justification is coming from the composition of different amino acids rather mm -hmm. than like an absolute protein intake. Because when we do look at um, historical groups of humans, the animal food intake was generally on the lean side. Like it's, we don't have year round access to these big wobbly fatty animals that we can just stick a spear in, you know, in nature, we can't just stick a spear in these fat things and get a huge intake of saturated fat year round. Like it's going to be seasonal when it occurs at all. Um, I'm reminded of a, a study on Australian Aborigines uh, that was where I think they, they put people out in the wild to try to acquire foods from their environment um, and survive on that. It was like, I think a study of diabetics is back in the eighties and their, uh, their fat intake ended up being something like eight to 12% because the animals were so lean and the, the lean protein intake was, conversely much higher. Um, so I've, I have trouble believing that animal protein itself is going to be a problem. I think what might be a problem again is like this consistency thing. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that eating the same foods year round without any fluctuation in, in those, the composition of that diet is uh, healthy. I don't think that's the case. That's to use a, the term Neolithic, that's a very Neolithic thing is to have a steady food supply that's mm -hmm. unaltered throughout the year. So I think things like protein cycling might be uh, mm -hmm. therapeutic for humans. I think that even carb cycling and going through different periods of different macronutrient intakes instead of always being low fat or always being low carb, um, I think that's probably what the human body is best adapted to. And I think when we see problems is when we control our diet to something that is so unchanged that our body doesn't have this, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the experience of adapting to change throughout the year. It just, it's a new thing. We haven't had that possibility for most of human history. So it sounds like uh, when you attempted to uh, deconstruct or find the faults in the low carb, high fat approach, that it's, you concluded that it was the cycling issue that wasn't being integrated into the recommendations. Would that be fair to say? Um, I would say that was that would be one issue. Um, mm -hmm. The low carb stuff, and I don't want to say that low carb doesn't work for anybody because it obviously mm -hmm. has clear benefits. We've seen that proven. Um, my concern again is like the long term effects, mm -hmm. especially for women, because I do one on one consulting with people, and a 
a large scary group that I have coming are like women who've done low carb, their thyroid function is tanking, they're gaining weight, they feel terrible, their hair is falling out. And happens with men too sometimes, but it's, mm -hmm. I think women hormonally were more sensitive to the lack of carbohydrate. Um, but even beyond that, I'm, like things like the effect on the gut microbiome, I think we mm -hmm. still need to understand what that's going to be long term. Um, I know, is it Jeff Leach? I think his name's Jeff Leach of the the Human Food Project. Mm -hmm. I might be butchering some of this. Um, but I think, been, I think correct. Yeah, I think he, there's a study or there's a, a post he wrote that's really interesting called Sorry, Low Carbers, Your Gut Microbes Aren't That Into You or something mm -hmm. like that. Right, right. And collecting data on people who've been doing low carb for a while and you see shifts in the gut microbiome composition that are they okay or are they not okay? We just don't really know that yet. Um, so I think it's important to keep an eye on that kind of thing. And I think, I, I too, I also feel concerned about a really long-term high intake of saturated fat too for, mm -hmm. for various reasons. Um, I mean, also again with the gut, it seems to increase gut permeability and it seems to increase the transport of endotoxin from gram negative bacteria out of the gut into the bloodstream, which is then associated with all sorts of inflammation and diseases that can stem from that. So there's, I mean, there's like, there's issues there. And on one hand, we see people switching away from the standard American diet to low carb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're going to feel great. Yeah, they're going to lose weight. There's going to be this initial honeymoon period, just like I had with raw veganism. And my, mm -hmm. my wondering is what happens over the course of many years and mm -hmm. on a large scale, because I don't, I'm not just interested in people who are like, yeah, I've done sure. low carb for 20 years. I'm doing great. I'm wondering what the bulk of the evidence is going to show. And I don't know if we really know that yet. So it's, it's more of like a precautionary concern. Like let's keep an eye on this. Well, I, I think there's fairly compelling suggestions that they're going to run into problems for, <clears throat> for many of the reasons you cited. Yeah. Uh, the, the challenge though, and this is, is to, is to integrate a happy balance. And, you know, I wrote the book fat for fuel and did a lot of heavy research on the studies with this. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that insulin resistance is pervasive. And yeah. literally, if you go to the more refined definition, it's about 80%, at least 80% of the population. So the, the lo where low carb can be really useful uh, would be in lowering insulin resistance. And, and then that still won't work in a large number of people. And I think they yeah. could need to get even more aggressive and do fasting. You know, once they've done that for a while, and then once they get rid of the insulin resistance, you've got to integrate carbohydrates back in for the reasons you stated. And if you don't, you will get sick. I mean, I personally got sick because I didn't understand that, <laughs> that that strategy, and I kind of figured it out myself, you know, empirically. But uh, right, I right, right. an end of one that it's not a good idea. Yeah, well, I think too with um, the idea of uh, like fixing insulin sensitivity with low carbohydrate eating, it's I think it's more a matter of those diets are great tools for people to mm -hmm. lose weight. And then you lose, you know, fat around the organs. You start improving insulin sensitivity because of that weight loss. Um, and because of the reduction of the energy surplus that many people are constantly, <laughs> you know, surrounded with. Um, but I use the analogy of like, imagine you have a refrigerator mm -hmm. and your refrigerator breaks. You can do one of two things. You can say, okay, well, I'm never going to buy any perishable food again. <laughs> I'm just going to, everything I'm going to buy is going to be dry goods. We won't use the freezer. We won't use the fridge. We're just going to let it sit there broken. Or you can fix the refrigerator. 
-hmm. Low carbohydrate diets are like saying, let's not use our refrigerator anymore. Let's not use our carbohydrate metabolism pathways anymore. Let's just avoid those. It's not actually fixing the issue. And I mean, as anyone who mm -hmm. knows who's been low carb, you go low carb for a while, you introduce carbohydrates and whoa, it's terrible. Your blood sugar goes crazy. You're, you know, you feel awful. It's like, wow, it's, it's the carbohydrates are terrible. Um, no, it's because your body is no longer working to metabolize metabolize those efficiently. Um, so my approach well, is more you, like... But you could actually, the converse can occur, and it occurred with me, is that once your insulin sensitivity is maximally increasing, you have very low insulin levels when you introduce, reintroduce carbohydrates. Yeah. Your blood sugar, your blood sugar when, in that state I just mentioned will tend to rise from yeah. hepatic gluconeogenesis. And then when you reintroduce uh, carbohydrates, that actually raises insulin and it drops your blood sugar. Which is, is which isn't seemingly paradoxical. It is paradoxical. Um, so that's through the use of the tool to achieve that state of insulin sensitivity. But what I'm seeing with a lot of people who go low carb, um, for the ones who don't lose weight, which there are some, or some who gain mm -hmm. weight, there's people who go ketogenic and they pack on 60 pounds and don't understand that. Yeah, you can't eat too much fat. Um, for those people, they're they're not going to improve that insulin resistance state because they're not undergoing the physiological changes that they need to get there. So um, I would totally agree that low carb can be used as a tool to achieve, you know, a healthier state. Um, but it's not necessarily like the fact that the diet is low carbohydrate itself. Like that's not what's restoring insulin sensitivity. It's all those other changes. It's the fat, lo fat loss around the pancreas. It's, you know, there's other stuff going on. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that. And I, I think, and I think part of it too, I'm sure you're familiar with the mTOR pathway. Yeah. And, you know, it's influence that protein has on it. And I think that's part of the reason why it's not just a low carb, it's a, it's an adequate protein, which in, by most definitions would appear to be low protein. Mm -hmm. And they both need to be integrated. And some of the people that you mentioned may have just been using traditional paleo, which is essentially high protein, high fat as sort of an old Atkins approach. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you're not going to get the benefits unless you restrict the protein, but the same scenario occurs, not necessarily for the same reasons, but you have to stimulate that mTOR. It's not like you permanently suppress it the rest of your life you will you'll be <laughs> catabolic and uh you know very looking like an emaciated concentration camp survivor after not too long like so you a raw vegan yeah <laughs> yeah you need to have protein you definitely need to have protein absolutely yeah yeah but but you know it's i think it's better and then there's some controversy too in fact i just read a study today you know it's traditionally thought that as you age the amount of protein like over 65 you should actually increase your protein intake but then there's there's some some controversy some other studies popping up and says maybe that's not true mm -hmm. but but you definitely want to retain your muscle mass as you age you do yeah. not want to lose it if you do yeah. it's it's a quick decline to terminating your life prematurely yeah Getting back to the meat spectrum, and you, you had re uh, mentioned it earlier, and I'm wondering if, you, if there's any other comments you've had on uh, eating the whole uh, uh, components of the meat, including the connective tissue, which is high in glycine that yeah. has its own benefits. Yeah. Um, usually when people ask me for, you know, like, what kind of meat should I eat? What should my animal food composition be? My focus is on nutrient density. Like, I don't like to look at you should eat this many servings of meat each week or this many ounces because it's it's so variable. It depends on what you're actually eating. Um, for my own diet, I focus on organ meats and shellfish is like my my nutrient-dense animal foods. Those are the my primary uh, foods that I eat that are of animal origin. What, and, what type of shellfish are you eating? Uh, oysters are my favorite. Just, they're mm -hmm. like, 
nutritionally, if you look at liver and oysters, oysters mm. are kind of like the liver of the ocean. Mm. <laughs> and just because, especially, and I, I say this too for people who are have ethical hangups about eating mm -hmm. things that are highly sentient and that look you in the eye and that are very much alive. Oysters lack that central nervous system that would think them, you know, equivalent to a cow. Um, so there's like that whole bival veganism movement <laughs> where people mm -hmm. are vegan with the inclusion of certain shellfish. And I think that can really go a long way for people to, to balance out a, a vegan diet that they're committed to for other reasons. Um, but yeah, basically it's, you know, I recommend people, first of all, when you're cooking meat, use gentle methods because that's another issue that we see in America with studies is like these high temperature cooking methods. They seem to be driving the correlation between meat consumption and different cancers that we see in observational studies. Like whenever you look at a study that actually controls for a cooking method, mm -hmm. typically once you take away the high heat grilling, frying, et cetera, kind of, kind of strategies for uh, cooking your meat, you see that the correlations with various diseases starts to diminish or if not disappear completely. Um, you know, you have heterocyclic amines that can form, you can have polyaromatic hydrocarbons that can form. There's mm -hmm. carcinogens that happen with that, that high temperature. Um, so, you know, be gentle with your meat. Um, muscle meat, you don't have to avoid it, but it needs to be balanced with other animal parts. Um, you know, again, like eat organs. Organs are so awesome, <laughs> so good, so important. And I think, I think the public in general needs to revise its concept of like what good meat is versus meat to avoid. Like there's just so many, so many psychological hangups people have about eating organ parts. It's like, well, the liver, the brain, the kidney, it's where all the stuff happens in the animal, but it's, it's all kind of a social, social conditioning. And so it's, you know, it's, we need to work on that. Okay. So the devil is in the details, like in most areas of yeah. life. So I'm wondering if you could uh, comment on how you identify sources, healthy sources of these, these types of foods, and then uh, importantly, how you prepare them. Because typically, you know, most people uh, are not too excited about having liver. <laughs> liver was a tough one. Um, first of all, just on a palatability issue spectrum, the smaller the animal, the the better the liver usually tastes. Like beef mm -hmm. liver is something I still can't really get into, but chicken liver, cook it with some like balsamic vinaigrette, put it on some salad. You know, you can make that tasty. Add some onions and garlic, and uh, you can mask the flavor pretty well. Um, but as far as sourcing meat goes, it's pretty. And then there's issues like with just buying something from the store that says organic or has certain special words on the label because there's. Like organic, for example, doesn't mean pesticide-free in general. It means that if there have been pesticides used, they're organic organic chemicals. They're naturally occurring. That doesn't mean they're not toxic. Um, so it's really important to like, if you're really committed to being super healthy about the meat that you're eating, figure out where the exact farms are. Go to farmer's markets. I'm a huge fan of farmer's markets because you can actually start talking to your suppliers and get a dialogue going about you know, what are you actually doing to my food? Where is it coming from? Um, so for people who want to go that far with it, that's always a good idea. It's like farmer's markets, co-ops, places that are local. Um, I'm a really big fan of moving away from centralized agriculture for a number of different reasons, some health related, some <laughs> related to ethical reasons and just our, our whole structure needs to change. And so I'm a big supporter of local, like find people who are nearby who are growing food and who mm -hmm. are moving away from that system. Um, but yeah, I mean, it takes 
it takes a little research, like no matter where you are, who you are, if you want your food to be high quality, you do have to do some digging and you have to make phone calls. You have to ask questions. And I couldn't agree more. The uh, organic certification label by the USDA has been progressively bastardized and they're punching loopholes, more loopholes in it every year. So (laughs) fortunately there are some alternative uh, certifications like American grass vet association, a few others that are a little more reliable, but I think focusing on the the local sources would be even better. But how do you, how do you apply this for oysters now or shell or shellfish? Well, I'm lucky because I live in the Pacific Northwest and Mm -hmm. I like, I you can take a, five gallon bucket of, uh, you know, like a paint bucket and go and get a fishing license for a day and just (laughs) fill up the whole thing with mussels and wonderful things. Um, But I mean, there's the issue, of course, of contamination from the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, Or or as many people will comment on this uh, interview, Fukushima radiation. Fukushima! (laughs) Um, Right. So I'm... Especially Pacific Northwest. I mean, and there's, there's like, they're mono... I, I won't get too much into that issue, but... Um, well, you could, because you can get a Geiger counter. They're not terribly expensive, and you can measure it. You, you can measure it yourself if you really want water. I think that's the isotope, and you know that usually isn't too high. It's I mean, not. It's, everything I've seen on Fukushima, um, we don't really have much to be worried about at this point. There's, I just, maybe in a few select areas, but the majority of our food right now is, is pretty safe on that level. Um, but yeah, in terms of like mercury contamination too, the, there's independent and government researchers who are who will compile lists and then you can find it online, just Google, see what the latest findings are and measurements in terms of like, you know, salmon versus tuna versus oysters versus mussels versus clams. Mm-hmm. Shellfish tend to be really low in heavy metal accumulation just because of, you know, they're not those big fish like tuna that are eating other animals consistently. Um, so they're, as far as I've seen, they're usually pretty safe on that level. You want to make sure you avoid, um, you know, some of the, the, the illnesses they can create. Like one of the issues I have in the Northwest is we go through those periods of like, okay, nothing on this area and this beach is edible right now. Cause it's been contaminated with whatever plankton or algae. I don't know what, I don't even know what it is, but you know, they tell you not to, to eat it cause it'll kill you. Um, so, you know, if you're doing your own, if you're doing your own like shellfish foraging, you have to be careful about that kind of thing. Um, but apart from that, shellfish are usually pretty safe. And I'm I'm not concerned about having those always be local. And obviously mm-hmm. people who live like in Iowa, you're not going to get a local oyster. It's, <laughs> it's not sure. going to happen. Yeah. Um, but maybe you can get local liver. So, you know, you might want to calibrate your diet to your environment a little bit. Um, well, there, I don't know that there are, but it's certainly possible technically to have shellfish farming. <laughs> you could, I guess you could. Yeah, you really do. I mean, field with a big old uh, oyster yeah. pond. <laughs> But they, you know, one of the concerns that some people have is that shelf, well, I'm thinking clams and oysters. I think oysters are pretty similar that they actually serve as filters and that, that many um, in, industrial operations will plant polluted uh, waterways with these to clean them up. That's possible. Um, I've heard the same argument made with liver, like just as a filtering mm-hmm. organ, but right. it doesn't, there's a difference between being a filter and a sponge. And mm-hmm. the things that we're calling filters, they're not necessarily accumulating the things that they're filtering. Like with liver, you don't see a buildup of a bunch of nasty chemicals from an animal. Like the liver is actually usually pretty clean on that front. And I believe it's the same with shellfish. I don't think they're 
they're getting yeah, they're, they're, with the liver, I can speak pretty confidently on that. It's largely because it's a detoxification organ. That's where you have your detox enzymes in phase one there and phase go. two. Yeah. And uh, it's responsible for converting from a fat-soluble toxin to a water-soluble toxin. And then, of course, it's excreted. It's not stored in the liver. It's excreted in the blood, typically, or in the bile. And then it works, goes into the gut or in the blood into the, you sweat it out or urinate it out <clears throat> or um, spit it out, I guess you could. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, so it probably, it, it's not stored in the liver is a key point. But how do you yeah. prepare these oysters or shellfish? To make I usually, I just steam them. I like take a big steam pot, mm -hmm. throw them in, cook them up, pop them out of a shell and eat like, disturbing amounts of them at once because they're so good they're really? really i mean they're very they're very easy to prepare oysters too can be pretty good raw if you're getting a good source of those so do you do you uh, put any condiments on them like lots of salt or other spices you know or? they're so salty on their own just because they're from the ocean um yeah, uh you know they can be good with some garlic like you can make a broth and put them in like a butter and garlic broth or something okay. i've seen that done but for me i'm like i'm a super lazy cook the, the less I have to do, the happier I am. So like if I can eat like a head of lettuce on its own without doing anything to it, that's what I'll do. Same with oysters, I'll steam that or like, you know, mussels, I'll steam them and just, great. So good. Yeah, the uh, most, certainly many people are deficient in magnesium. It's probably the most common mineral deficiency, but zinc is pretty much right up there. And, and as yeah. I understand it, oysters are probably the best food source of zinc. Absolutely, which is why they're great for vegans too, because yeah. vegans tend to be pretty low in zinc, and they're just you know it's like a natural supplement. Well, that's that's wonderful. So, how long have you been um, consuming this type of uh, pattern? This pattern, <laughs> yeah. um, that's a good question. Well, so I I left my vegan stuff, or I stopped um, the first time I ate fish. Mm -hmm. I was seventeen, I think eighteen, mm -hmm. seventeen. It was at a school potluck, like it was. We had a college class, poetry class or something, and somebody brought in sashimi. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't eaten fish since I was seven. And so I was like looking at this plate of sashimi, like who eats raw fish, right? Like looking at, and then all of a sudden my hand just went like, it was like this instinctual, like primal, like my body needs this. My hand just made like a beeline for the salmon. And I was just like stuffing it in my face. And then I was like, oh, it feels so good. Your life changed. So that changed my life. That un that unveganized, unvegetarianized me. And then um, I did dairy for a while while I was trying to rebuild my dental health. I was getting a, a fermented goat yogurt that was really helpful. I think it was pretty high in vitamin K2, which I didn't know at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I was eating that and it was helping restore a lot of my, my dental problems. Um, but I have, uh, I get like serious upper body congestion from dairy, even really high quality dairy. So I had to drop that and I ended up um, incorporating more seafood. I forget the first time I had liver, but that was also another like, oh, my body needs this. I was probably so low in iron. Um, I just, it felt and tasted amazing. Um, and then especially living in the Northwest, like just having access to a lot of seafood, I've kind of built my diet more as like a pescatarian slash high vegetable slash, you know, various organ meats kind of conglomeration. Um, so I would say, how long have I been eating this way? Oh, probably like seven years, maybe six, seven and what's oh, yeah. the what's the biggest tweak you've made in those seven years? Um, that's a good question. Because you know you're you're um, someone who's not committed to an ideology, and you're just going to yeah. let the find find out the the facts speaks for themselves. And you're open, you know, you're not committed to some 
specific philosophy and, you, and as you learn new material you integrate into your process and i'm wondering what what you've learned in the past seven years has changed your approach to eating the most that's a great question um and actually thinking about it i started out really fruit-based like from my raw vegan history and mm -hmm. that was something i kept in my diet for a long time like i would eat just a ton of fruit in the, the morning eat smoothies um just like just pound down the fruit i love fruit I've kind of switched more, like especially learning more about the gut microbiome, learning about resistant starch, looking, learning about different forms of fiber and their effect on the body. Um, I've been incorporating more like legumes and lentils and mm -hmm. potatoes that have been heated and then cooled down for the resistant starch content. And I think that has helped. I think it's helped a lot. And I've also kind of flipped my diet um, in terms of the staggering of macronutrients throughout the day. I used to start with a lot of carbohydrate and not much else, like in the form of just eating fruit. Um, and now I usually start with a lot of protein and vegetables and like my carby meals at the end of the day. And I find mm -hmm. that helps with sleep and it helps with energy levels. It helps with focus. Um, and I, I usually eat like my first meal pretty late in the day. Like right now we're filming and it's 12.44 my time PM. Uh, I haven't eaten breakfast yet and haven't eaten anything yet. So, so you're an intermittent faster. You're an IF. Like, yeah, I wouldn't say I do it consciously. I do it because I'm forgetful about. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, it's, no, no, it's for you. You could be forgetful because exactly. you're metabolically flexible and you flexible. have the ability to actually metabolize fat for fuel, which the vast majority, 89% of the people in the country do not have. That's true. Woohoo. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Now, uh, and in preparing for this interview, I, I sought to watch some of your latest material on YouTube. And the most recent one I could find was your uh, presentation at the most recent, as we're recording this, most recent Weston Price Foundation, where you uh, attempted to debunk another program, which is Dr. Dadamo's Eat Right for Your t Type, which right. is literally a probably one of the best book titles out there is along with uh oh, wait eat right for your type is walcott's it's the blood type diet i think the blood right? it's eat yeah. right for your type no yeah oh, right for your type okay yeah. yeah okay yeah so eat right for your type and uh, which uh, you know he could have should have gotten a an award for creating that head that's the best part of the book it, it really is good <laughs> it is. But, but you know, and, and you and I have both shared the same view in that it's not necessarily good. And in fact, I tried it in the 90s. I, I was actually at a presentation before the book was published and he had his first draft. And it was like 20 physicians in a small room and we were yeah. dialoguing about it. So I tried it early on and it just wasn't a good for me because I'm blood type A. <laughs> doesn't me work too. too well. Doesn't work yeah. too well for the A's. So, but part of his thesis is is the lectins. And and I want to integrate, and maybe we can talk a little bit about, about the tips, but I don't want to necessarily go into the microbiome component. Sure. But, but the reason I bring it up is that there's another pretty brilliant individual I've interviewed twice now, Dr. Stephen Gundry, who wrote the book, The Plant Paradox, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And maybe you're in the process of debunking his work, but I don't Not think that. I, I, <laughs> I think it's pretty solid. Yeah. And, and the reason I mentioned that is that some of the foods you mentioned that you're integrating into your diet, mm -hmm are relatively high in lectins. And I'm wondering if you have developed any strong positions on Gundry's approach on lectins, because it seems pretty solid. Um, I, you know, I'll say I'm not that familiar with Gundry's work at this moment. I've looked a little bit into it. I'm familiar with his general ideas, mm -hmm. but I, I haven't gotten to the point where I'm like critiquing his stuff or, you know, measuring it for validity. Um, I will say that I do a lot of work with autoimmunity and um, mm -hmm. that whole world. And so I will say that when the right elements are in place to create an autoimmune body, like a, a body that's susceptible to that, whether it's genetics, whether it's like lifestyle mm -hmm. 
antibiotic use, gut microbiome issues. Um, at that point, the lectin problem can be can be real. Like there, there can be a legitimate reason to avoid foods that are high in certain lectins, especially the ones that are individually triggering autoimmune responses. For people with a healthy gut microbiome, I don't see a legit, mm. like, I don't see the, I okay. don't see that being So that's your vision of it. Okay. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, cause if you look at human history, like our plant sources of foods yeah. and like, look at other primates, look at any wild animal, like the lectin content of wild foods are generally like pretty high. And so there's going to have been a long adaptation period for us to learn how to coexist with those lectins in our diet. And I think it's yeah. more an issue of like the modern environment creating a really unhealthy microbiome that's making it so some people cannot ha handle what should be a natural lectin load. Um, so that would be my takeaway right now, you know, subject to revision. Yeah. I, I agree. And I have stopped seeing patients over 10 years ago now, but I wish I had known this information because it, I've concluded that if you have an autoimmune problem, it is just almost criminal not to integrate lectin avoidance yeah, until you resolve that issue. And yeah. they are pretty pervasive. It's like maybe half the population. Yeah. yeah. And, and then getting back to, you know, you mentioned if there's some reason that you have an issue, well, you know, they're spraying 5 million pounds of tons five million pounds it's a lot of glyphosate yeah. uh, every year it's the most widely used herbicide in in the world and of course that decimates the the gut barrier and and allows these proteins to enter so almost yeah. every, if you're eating a conventional diet you've got a leaky gut and then i think lectin avoidance becomes another issue so it's a really unusual profoundly healthy subset who can probably use the lectins like you're doing yeah would, be the, would, would you agree with that um, probably more or less. It's very individualistic. It's, yeah. 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 Okay. So let's, let's get back at, at debunking Dr. Dadamo's book, Eat Right for Your Type. Yay. So, uh, you know, it, 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 my take on it, which you didn't express in your interview, it was that half the people have blood type O, half the people. And that's the most that's the most common. So his recommendation seems to be fairly consistent with you and I would both agree is a pretty healthy diet. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so you know, half the population is going to Yeah. Get so it's relatively, you know, healthy. <laughs> so they're going to be better. So there's amazing testimonials on his, his program. There's no right. question. Lots of people, but a lot of people get worse. So why don't you share your insights on it? Because you prepared for it and gave a whole presentation on it. Right. So, I mean, the fundamental issue with his, everything he's saying is that it's all wrong. Like his, the, the premise of his diet, this idea that certain foods have different lectins, those lectins interact with the, like what's expressed on our blood cells to cause issues within the blood. And that then causes like inflammation and diseases. There's absolutely no mechanistic evidence showing that we can obtain high enough levels of lectins from certain foods and that those foods will specifically interact with our specific blood type in a way to create these problems like that. That evidence just isn't there. I don't know where, I don't know what he's, it was my understanding he had a lab that he was doing these studies. I, there, I think there may have been a lab, but there's like problems with the research actually being published. It certainly hasn't been replicated by other researchers. It's more of a like, this is what I found. You have to take my word for it because I wrote a book and I have a doctor. You know, there's there's like a certain just trust me. I'm a scientist behind mm -hmm. that, which I oof. If there's anything I don't like, that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah. So that I mean, fundamentally, like just the whole idea that it's the lectins in food that are causing these problems via interaction with our blood cells is. No bueno. Uh, what fascinated me, because I, when I went into that presentation, 
I was like, well, this is thing. This whole thing is just stupid. You know, I, his diet's stupid. I wanted to debunk this. That was my approach when I first was mm-hmm. like looking into his research. And then the more research I actually did on the different things that our blood type can influence in the body, one of the most interesting to me was that the, the our ABO blood group can actually influence the composition of our gut microbiome for people who are secretors, for people who secrete their blood type antigens on the surface of like mucus cells and throughout the body and the saliva and the gut, um, the gut in particular. So let's say that you're a blood type A and you're secreting an A antigen on different cells within the gut. There's going to be certain bacteria that use that antigen as a food source and as an attachment site. And so those, those specific bacteria are going to be more attracted to your microbiome and to, they're going to set up camp there in a way that they might not be doing to somebody who's a blood type O. So you're actually going to start shifting the the proportion of different bacteria because of your blood type. And tied into this is the idea of being a secretor versus a non-secretor. Most people are secretors. They They will express their blood type antigens on the surface of different cells throughout the body. I think about 20% of the population are non-secretors. And for this group, like regardless of what their actual blood type is, they have a much higher risk of a lot of digestive diseases, a lot of different health conditions in general related to the fact that their their microbiome is fundamentally different. It's like it's providing different or a lack of attachment sites for different bacteria. So there is an influence of blood type on different things going on in the body. It's just not through the avenue that Diadama or whatever his name is, you know, it's not through his theory like that. Just, just forget that. Just throw it away. Just baby yeah. with the buff. Like throw all of that away. But there's still stuff there which I think is interesting to look at. Yes, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, yeah. we're always learning more. Life is a journey, and we'll never figure it out. Certainly in our lifetime. Hopefully not. <laughs> it makes it fun. It does. So what what's what's new that you're working on? You mentioned earlier before we got on that you were in the process of writing some articles or a book or yeah. So I've I've been underground for a few years. Um, a lot of that was just personal life needing my attention more than my professional life. Um, but I'm kind of back out working on some new projects, and one of those is um, it's called Awesome Omnivore. It's going to mm-hmm. be a little probably ebook. I'm thinking at this point um, with for people who are omnivores how to do it right. Like what kind of meat do you eat? What are the, like A1 versus A2 dairy? Like what, how do you cook meat to make it as low carcinogen as possible? How do you combine meat with different other foods to reduce the absorption of heme iron, which does seem to have some type of pro-cancer effect in the intestinal tract? All these different strategies. Well, even, even systemically, I mean, that's a really big issue. If you have high iron, it's going to increase oxidative stress and, and really mess up your mitochondria. It's right. serious mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah. So it's a, I, I have a, I have a, a genetic condition called thalassemia, which predisposes me to high iron levels. So I have to be Nasty. really assiduous at keeping my iron levels low. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, stuff like that. I mean, and then if you're eating, what's always interesting to me is if you eat, because of the molecular structure of heme, it's so similar to chlorophyll. Mm-hmm. So if you're eating a bunch of green leafy vegetables along with your steak, you're actually going to be, uh, that the chlorophyll is going to be a bl- blocking the absorption of some of the heme. And that alone is going to make that meal probably on the 
whole healthier for you mm -hmm. just for that one issue. Um, so it's a book basically of strategies and of- I, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard of that. So it's competitive absorption. Yeah. Between chlorophyll. Yeah. So I, I mean, certainly we recommend uh, supplements like chlorella for detoxing when you're taking eating seafood, mm -hmm. but I hadn't heard of it for eating meat. That but it does make sense. Yeah. And that's, I think also why when we conduct studies on red meat intake and you see those correlations with colorectal cancer, mm -hmm. a lot of that goes away when you adjust for vegetable intake, because in America, meat eating is considered, I mean, for people who are eating a lot of red meat, paleo movement, keto movement, low carb movement, notwithstanding, those people are generally not as health conscious as people who are eating a lot of vegetables. And so there's like this, this kind of dichotomy of you have the vegetable eaters, you have the meat eaters, the meat eaters are not usually eating enough vegetables to offset that heme issue. Um, but if you look at studies that actually adjust for that one variable, the, the link with meats problems tends to disappear. So it's again, like veggies to the rescue, but it doesn't mean that you can't eat meat too. So anyway, so the book, you know, it's going to be a collection of things people can do to ensure that the meat they're consuming and the eggs and the dairy products, if they're doing that, um, is as healthy as possible. And it's going to be like just an actionable, do this, do this, do this, eat this, do this. So I just felt like it'd be good to compile all of that information into one place because they okay. tend to disperse it in nuggets to people mm -hmm. without... I just want it consolidated. So I'm yeah. working on that. And I'm also working on something called plant-based paleo, um, which is for people who are committed to being plant-based, again, for whatever reason, if it's mm -hmm. preference, if it's moral, if it's spiritual, if it's religious, um, you know, what do you do in those circumstances to ensure that you can stay as healthy as possible for as long as possible with the limitations that you're providing for yourself? Because with vegans, the, the issue is... Um, you know, there's, there are vegans who have survived a long time on their diet. It's not impossible. I mean, some, the human body is incredibly adaptable, but we need to understand what's working for those people. And that we need to understand that there's a lot of genetic components that go into being able to convert plant-based nutrients into their animal-based sources. Like you have beta carotene, for example, people who have really good um, conversion of beta carotene into retinol they'll probably do okay. They're probably not going to run into reproductive issues, teeth issues, skin issues, eye issues, like some of us did, like I did. Um, mm -hmm. But for about 45% of the population, there are mutations with the BCM01 gene that prevents that conversion from being efficient. If you have uh, two very common polymorphisms, your conversion rate is going to drop by almost 70%. There's an, another less common uh, mutation that will tank your conversion by 90%. So if you're a vegan, you're not eating any preformed vitamin A, you have some of the mutations, you're going to have problems pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, like, how do we, how do we work with people's genetics? How do we work with their dietary limitations? And how do we- So in those con conditions where the people have these genetic SNPs, uh, or single nucleotide polymorphisms, uh, do you recommend uh, supplements? Like, and vitamin A is so inexpensive, retinol. Yeah, supplement would be good. I mean, I would love for people to take cod liver oil if they were, <laughs> if they're on, if they're, if they can get over that one, one issue. Um, but it's, again, it's like, you need to be really aware of your specific conditions. You Like what I did when I was a raw vegan was I saw this message board full of people who'd been eating this diet for like 10 years and they were they're happy about it. They supposedly happy about it. You know, there's always stuff going on behind the scenes, but that was compelling to me because I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. But that's not the case. I have uh, those BCM01 mutations. My vitamin mm -hmm. A conversion is terrible. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason that eating liver was a huge boon for my diet because it was my first like 
concentrated source of vitamin A that I'd had in like a decade, more than a decade. Yeah, and more, and I suspect you did a 23andMe. I did. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty inexpensive. And I think even though the FDA changed the position, I, mean, I think you still need to use a secondary source. And there's a bunch of them out there where you take the raw data, yeah. converts it into like a hundred page report for like five or $10 and it tells you what, what's up and you can it's figure it out. Great. Yes. I highly recommend it. Yeah. So yeah, you can do that and learn all about your unique needs and it can help you design your own diet too for your specific yeah. genetics. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of genetics, uh, but there are some useful strategies and you certainly can uh, avail yourself to them with that strategy. So yeah. this plant-based uh, paleo, is that also going to be an ebook or is that going to be It's also going to be an ebook. I'm probably going to release them about the same time because my my audience, whatever's left of it, <laughs> I haven't updated my blog in so long. Um, it's like, it's a fascinating mix of people who are still vegan, but who are really open-minded. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get emails all the time from people who are like, you know, I, I read your book or I read your book, I read your blog. I just can't eat meat. Like, how do I stay healthy with, with what I'm trying to do here? And so I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I'm promoting this diet is optimal. I'm saying that mm -hmm. if, if there's here's, limitations, here's let's, do, let's see what we can do with that. Let's work with what we got. Yeah. And hopefully you'll be integrating the the importance of in a, uh, using cyclical approach with, you know, once yeah. you've established insulin sensitivity again, that you need, absolutely need to increase your high carb and, and actually increase your protein intake, which is hard to do is if you're plant-based, but you still can do yeah. it. You can and do so, it with, yeah. the, with the bean. I mean, the beans would probably be a, a good strategy. Legumes. I mean, I've yeah. There's there's it's there's always going to be challenges with that. But yeah, I think the cyclical issue is is huge too. And I I don't know if you saw this post. And I did a talk on this too. Um, I think the year before, two mm -hmm. years ago, three. I don't know. Some 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 point in history, sure. I did a talk on um, this uh, what I call the macronutrient swampland mm. versus the magic on two mm -hmm. different ends because we've been studying keto we've been studying like the unique metabolic state that mm -hmm. is ketosis nutritional ketosis or fasting induced ketosis and i think we have a lot of research looking at just like the the therapeutic benefits of that but what's really interesting to me is we have a pretty big body of literature looking at what happens when fat intake is kept below 10 percent of calories mm -hmm. and this is what for me like again this is going back to like listening to your critics sometimes mm -hmm. the plant-based community that seems to be achieving success are the really low fat people like McDougal, Esselstyn, um, Neil Bernard with diabetes. There's, there's like a group of people who are, have reported clinical benefits of putting people on a really low fat plant-based diet, but it mm -hmm. doesn't happen when the fat intake goes up. It's like this, there's something, something going on there. <laughs> and what's the so, threshold and what have you, what it's is about your... 10, 10 to 15% of calories is, really? is fat. Wow, and really tiny amount. So really tiny amount. And there was what, I mean, what, that's so nutrient this is nine calories per gram. So. Exactly. So there's, yeah, it's really hard to keep things that low. You basically have to avoid all added fats. And if you're eating animal products, they have to be super lean. Um, and what, what, like this whole thing just blew my mind. Cause there was, a, are you familiar with the rice diet by Walter Kempner? Yeah, that's been, the, that's a really old the, diet. The really old diet, but he was using like in some cases feeding people a pound of white sugar a day, mm -hmm. and they were seeing improvements with their sugar diet. Sugar being the rice. No white white freaking rice or white sh like <laughs> DNH pure cane, you know. Wow. The, right? You know, so um, he was putting people on this diet that was like so heavily sugar based, but the fat was really low. 
And mm-hmm. so there's something that, and I'm not going to say that people should be going on that diet. No, no, no. But, but there's some, some there's mechanisms. Some there's beneficial approach going on. Exactly. So there's something going on with that really low fat intake, improving carbohydrate metabolism. And there's, you know, we have the Randall cycle. There's the competition of um, between free fatty acids and glucose in the bloodstream for use as fuel. And I think we have enough evidence to, to say pretty clearly that when you combine fat and carbohydrate within the same meal, if you're a healthy person, you're going to see a reduced glucose response, blood glucose response, but you're going to see the same amount of insulin secretion. Like it's like fat doesn't doesn't decrease the insulin needs of um, your body when you're eating carbohydrate. It actually, kind of uh, amplifies them. And then for diabetics, there's been studies where they'll take a potato, feed it to a diabetic repeat the study with a little bit of butter added, a little bit more butter added, a little bit more butter added. And the more butter you add to the potato, the more insulin that person needs to use, the diabetic needs to use to to deal with that meal. And so there's like an interactive effect, even within the span of one meal between fat and carbohydrate, that I think these two different ends of the spectrum deal with by avoiding severely one macronutrient. So I think we can take that information because I don't believe in staying at one end forever. I think obviously, you know, you need fat soluble nutrients. You're going to need, you know, there's fatty foods that are highly nutritious too. Same time, you're going to need more carbohydrate to deal with the long-term consequences of, of, uh, you know, ketogenic diets. So cycling them, you know, maybe getting to... and that seems to be a perfect reason that, that explains the benefits of, of fasting because <laughs> there's no fat in fasting. That's exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's inter- very yeah, interesting. Yeah. I think it's, I think there's a way to integrate everything. It's, it's yeah. what I always come back to is like these, all these warring diet communities, mm-hmm. they need to let go of the ego stuff and communicate with each other. Like stop saying we have the truth. We own the truth. Start listening to the other side and try being curious about why things are working for them. For me, that's the way I've learned best, like by challenging mm-hmm. what I believe. Cause if, if what I believe can be, uh, you know, dismantled, then it's not a good belief to hold. Like you need to constantly revise your theory about the world, about nutrition, about everything. It's just, it needs to be in a state of flux. This is yeah. terrific. Well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure connecting with you and having you, be, uh, share your wisdom thank you uh just i just love the way your mind works and your philosophy and i'm sure you're going to be doing great things in the future because you've got the skill set to do it Uh, and i I would be very grateful to your parents for giving helping you provide you with that skill set because i'm suspecting that my mom they're largely (laughs) responsible no doubt in my mind i've just i just love yeah, I, I've, in the last year, I've lost my parents, and I've, you know, and I, and I recognize at this time that they were largely responsible for, you know, giving me the tool set to achieve what I have. So yeah, and both and of my very parents, clear yeah. that that's that's the same in your case. No, they have been amazing teachers for different reasons for both yeah. both yeah. of them. So I will pass on the, that note to them. Thank you. Yes.